World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The story of Louisiana's culture, the intertwining of Creole and Cajun history, is complicated. and Some of it has been societally and even legally suppressed. We examine a growing push to reclaim and celebrate the Louisiana that preceded America. And it's getting to the point that you gotta ask, is there anything Taylor Swift can't do? Next on the list of her powers, we've got the seismological evidence that her music, or her fans' response to it, can cause earthquakes. But first... Just over a year ago, a then-little-known American company called OpenAI released a platform that would set the bar for what's called generative artificial intelligence. A new AI tool is taking the tech world by storm. It blows my mind. It's called ChatGPT, and things it can do are mind-boggling. The things it can do, and other large language models like it, are striking. From generating convincing prose, to clever computer code, to passable art, all on command. ChatGPT had the fastest user take-up in history. All over the world, people got their hands on what seemed almost, well, human in its abilities. But it's not the only game in town, the only game on the planet. Other tech companies in other countries are working on their own large language models. And what might at first have seemed like an advance for all humankind is increasingly seen as a means to geopolitical advantage. Countries around the world are racing to create their own AI industries. Arjun Ramani is The Economist's global business and economics correspondent. They basically want to make sure that they're in control of their technological destinies. In the process, we have what you might call a new era of AI nationalism. So let's let's lay out the state of the race before we talk about the nationalism you describe. Who are the runners and riders? Yeah, so basically you have America and China, the usual suspects at the front, and then you have everyone else trying to catch up. So obviously America is home to OpenAI, Google, and the various other big tech companies that already have big large language models or LLMs. China has its own parallel set of these big tech giants. But then you have all these other countries that are trying to follow them up. So you have countries in the Middle East like Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia that are basically using China's state capitalist approach as a model. So on November 28th of last year, Abu Dhabi launched a new state-backed AI company called AI71, and they've told me they're willing to spend billions on this. And you also have European countries like France and Germany. Probably the most notable is Mistral, which is a French company. 
And the last country to mention, and it's also where I am right now, is India. You can probably hear the, the traffic in the background. So it has two new LLM startups that are creating a lot of buzz here. One of them is called Sarvam. Uh, they just raised $41 million to build language models that are focused on Indian language, which is interesting because it has a different script. And so you say the top of the table is usual suspects, America and China. Can America keep its dominance, do you reckon, if the field keeps expanding at this rate? It's hard to say. I mean, the key thing that America controls right now is semiconductor chips. So America is home to NVIDIA, which is the main producer of these very valuable AI specialist chips. And President Joe Biden's administration has leveraged this control over companies like NVIDIA to enact brutal export controls that basically ban the sale of the cutting edge chips and also the chip making equipment that you need to make them to adversaries like China. And so if other countries are able to replicate this chip supply chain, they stand a much better chance of competing, basically. And then the other thing the U.S. is doing is they're trying to make sure they bring home all the other parts of the chip supply chain, namely the manufacturing. TSMC is now building a fab that makes chips in Arizona with a lot of government money. But China has its own AI industrial strategy. Which is what? Well, they're spending a lot of money to start. So 2021 and 2022, the Chinese government spent nearly $300 billion to recreate its chip supply chain. This is both for the cutting-edge AI chips and for other older generations. The reason it's doing this is to protect itself from American sanctions. It's also giving a lot of money to companies like Huawei and SMIC, which is China's biggest chip maker, to make sure they can design and manufacture these leading-edge chips. And they actually have had some success that surprised some American analysts. And then China's also investing a lot of money in the venture capital industry, which is pretty unique. They're backing what people call guidance funds. They're trying to redirect money away from sectors that thinks are frivolous, like video games, towards things that are serious, like AI and semiconductor chips. And so away from the top of the table, then, how are countries sort of setting themselves up to really be in the race now? So the thing that's really interesting about this AI nationalism world is in the last few waves of technology, basically the rest of the world grew dependent on American technology infrastructure. Everyone uses Microsoft Office, Google Search, American cloud companies, social media companies that are from the US. And China was the only exception because they basically shut out all these companies. But now all the other countries, you know, in Europe and the rest of Asia, they want AI to be different. So the main ones that I'll mention are Britain, France, Germany, India, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. And they're all spending a, a decent amount of money as well. So they've promised around $40 billion to semiconductor companies, AI firms, and just buying the chips themselves in the last year. So the nature and degree of how involved the governments are varies from each wannabe AI superpower to the other. But in most cases, the state has a lot of influence. Which is why you're calling this an era of, of AI nationalism. I mean, let, let, let's pick that apart. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at Saudi Arabia and the UAE because they have the biggest amount of state influence. So they're doing a few things. So first is they're just using a lot of money to buy these specialist AI chips that really only NVIDIA is designing right now. Um, they spent a few hundred million dollars just last year towards this. The other thing they're doing is they're trying to sharp talent. So you have a lot of universities that are entirely funded by the state or mostly funded by the state. And they're poaching a lot of top professors from the US and Europe. And one thing that's really interesting about the UAE is because it has 
power to kind of cut through the the red tape and kind of direct the private sector. It's basically taking national data sets that the government really only has access to in healthcare and education, and it's using that to make these models uh, more performant. It's doing additional training on that data. And then if you look to other countries, so France or India, they're also trying to do things sort of like this. You know, in France's example, Mistral's co-founder basically told me that the government's been quite cooperative. There's a possibility maybe they will be able to tap into French public data at some point. Even the UK is considering using the National Health Service to this end. In India, there's a lot of digital public infrastructure. People call it the India stack. There's talk of them working with companies like Sarvam. So basically, governments are leveraging what they have, which is money and then data to support their their AI industries. I just wonder, though, about the the degree to which countries trying to do this on their own is, is going to give them the outcome that they want. I mean, will, will countries that find themselves sort of not leading the race ever even potentially catch up? It's a good question. I would maybe reframe it a bit. You know, some of these countries, they don't necessarily need to or even want to be globally dominant. Really what they're looking for is technological sovereignty. Perhaps if you think AI is going to be useful for military applications or you have highly regulated sectors where you don't want to be sending your data to companies abroad, then maybe it makes sense to have at least one domestic AI national champion. That said, this type of massive spending of money still carries risks. The biggest risk is just it's a waste of money because the technology is immature. But in the broadest sense, do you think it is good for AI or bad for AI in terms of what's to be discovered if there's all of this raising of the drawbridges going on? I think it goes both ways. So on one hand, more money is always good for technological development. The world of AI becomes more competitive. You have more different approaches. But on the flip side, as the industry fragments into these different spheres, collaboration, for example, between US and Chinese scientists on AI is falling rapidly then you lose some of the global benefits of research collaboration. And so you have more money on one hand, you have less collaboration on the other hand. The net effect, I guess we'll find out. I suspect the more money will end up mattering more. Just massive amounts of of cash, billions and billions of dollars pouring into AI now all around the world, which will probably accelerate the rate of progress. But whether that's a good thing or not, I guess depends on whether you think rapid AI progress is actually a good thing for the world. Dark undertones. Arjun, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Recently, I took a trip down to Louisiana, the southwestern part, so not like New Orleans where most people have been. Rebecca Jackson is our southern correspondent. I drove about an hour outside of Lafayette to a place called Eunice, and I approached a campground. There, there was this sort of music and dance festival that was going on. It was dusty. It was kind of humid. There were two lakes on either side with people jumping in and out. People were sitting in circles. 
doing kind of jam sessions, singing, dancing, playing music, learning from each other. I was there to meet a man named Jordan Thibodeau. He texted me and said that he was by the lake tending to his horses. I walked up to him, said hello, and it turned out that he was kind of the star of the show. We found our way into this barn where someone was giving a dance lesson and sat down to chat. No, my French people, the majority of my French got here in the 1770s, 1780s. Jordan is one of the most quietly charismatic people I've ever met. He's got an accent that I had never heard before as an American and even sounded a bit foreign to me. He's a fiddle player who is apparently one of the best musicians in southwestern Louisiana. He plays Cajun music and sings in French. Uh, music. My music's all syncopated. It follows African beats, African call and response. Uh, we've got French fiddle madness. We've got a German accordion. And he's also just personally quite a character. As I was chatting with him, he was spitting, chewing tobacco, drinking liquor from a flask and tending to his horse. He seemed to know everyone, and everybody wanted to meet him. How are you, man? Good to see you. How are you doing? Doing well. Yeah. I hadn't seen you since Michigan, huh? No, I don't think so, yeah. When I sat down with Jordan, I was a bit surprised, because the person who had introduced me to him was his cousin, who was a black man. But Jordan looked white to me. I asked him about his racial background, and he said that, like lots of people in southwestern Louisiana, he was kind of a mix of everything. African, French, Native American, and Spanish. Though his day job is making pork sausages and flipping houses, he's made preserving the heritage of his family his life's project. He does that mostly through his music. His mournful ballads lament young people of the bayous who have forgotten their families and only speak what he calls their conqueror's language. This is a song, La Prière, The Prayer, which he sings in French. In it, he says, you live your culture or you kill your culture. There is no in-between. The story of that culture actually goes back way before America was even founded, to 1718, when the French arrived in New Orleans, and one year later, when they brought the first slave ships to Louisiana. But while Jordan sings in French, another language integral to the Louisianan identity is also having a comeback. And what language is that? The other language is Kurivini, or what people call Louisiana Creole. Basically, what it means is that colonizers melded their language with the slaves that they brought. And this happened in some places more than in others. In Louisiana, the cash crop was sugarcane, so it required lots of slaves. Because there were so many slaves, the masters needed to communicate with them. Whereas in places like the Dominican Republic, where they farmed tobacco and indigo, there were smaller groups, and so the slaves just picked up on their masters' languages. But because the communication between Europeans and Africans was so integral in Louisiana, they created this hybrid language, Corivini. And as a language, what's it like? I spoke with a historian named Christophe Landry, who gave me a sense of it. Corivini shares lots of vocabulary and grammar with French, but it's definitely got different pronunciation, and it's not understandable to the average French speaker. These things have a palatal or where like it just flaps, right? So instead of saying très, We'd say so the or is a little bit different. By the time that America purchased Louisiana in 1803, that's 85 years or so after the first French and enslaved Africans arrived in Louisiana, Corivini was spoken alongside French. So when French gets like standardized in the 1880s, Creole was already over 150 years old in Louisiana by that. Slaves spoke it to white masters. Poor whites learned it on the plantations and black nannies taught it to wealthy white children. 
The fluidity of language was also indicative of a wider mixing of people and culture in southwestern Louisiana, and it ended up creating a whole ethnic identity of its own, the one that Jordan Thibodeau is trying to keep alive. Well, what does that ethnic identity entail beyond the Caribbean language? It's a lot of things. It's language, it's culture, it's music, it's religion. And much of this was actually brought about by the Catholic Church. Because the French and the Spanish, who briefly ruled the colony, were Catholic, they believed that their slaves ought to be baptized. That gave way to more permissive relations between Black people and white people in Louisiana that really wasn't felt in other parts of the South that were dominated by Protestants. What you had then was masters having children with Black and Native women and actually passing land down to mixed children. Though the brutalities of slavery certainly persisted, Louisianans of all colors came to consider themselves part of the same culture. That cross-racial identity became known as Creole, and it lasted up until the end of the Civil War. Wait, what happened then? After the war, Southern Democrats, who were angry at the Northern conquerors, came into the legislature and imposed Jim Crow laws that segregated blacks and whites. The unique melded culture started to fall apart. Some light-skinned Creoles even left Louisiana to start over as white elsewhere. By 1921, after the First World War, things were only getting worse. Lawmakers decided that English could be the only language spoken in schools. That meant that if a child spoke French or Corivini, they were beaten or had to kneel on rice. In the 1910s, it's estimated that there were about a million Corivini speakers. Today, there are only 5,000. When I was in Louisiana, I met up with one of them. He was a Gen Zer named Talib Pierre Auguste. My name is Talib Amani Pierre Auguste. I am 20 years old. I am from Louisiana, specifically Ascension Parish. He speaks both Creole and French. And we met on a hazy, humid night on the steps of the state capital. Though Talib was on the phone with a friend in a language that wasn't English when we first met, he told me about how stigmatized speaking Corivini was just a generation ago. My grandma, she grew up speaking, and her, fa- her father always told her, don't speak in front of no white person. Don't go out in public speaking this language. So then she tells it to her son, don't speak in public. So that keeps that stigmatization going. So given all those pressures that you've been talking about, why didn't Corivini just disappear altogether? Coming off the heels of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, Louisianans created an ethnic pride movement of their own. But they called it Cajun, not Creole. And it was only for the white people in Louisiana. With it came a whole tourist industry. They started bringing people down to taste jambalaya and gumbo and tour the alligator-infested swamps. As more white people identified as Cajun, Creole as a fallback became a word for Blacks. And Black people really had no part in this Cajun movement and had no benefit from the tourism that came from it. Nor did Corivini see the kind of resurgence that French was having. But what I got a sense of when I was there is that now things are changing. There's a movement of young people of all shades who look to the world both Black and white, who are trying to bring back both French, Corivini, Creole, and Cajun culture. Jordan, the musician, has grand plans to get local bars to serve people only in the old languages. And Talib, who spoke earlier about his grandmother, 
goes between classes to lobby lawmakers at the state capitol to back French and Creole projects. But there are still certainly plenty of headwinds. Talib is pretty concerned that the resurgence won't necessarily take off. Over the past couple of years, he's watched many of his friends leave Louisiana for better economic prospects, for school, for jobs. And he worries that they won't be coming back. In order to keep his culture alive, he really feels that it needs young people. Because without them, the culture will certainly die. Thanks very much for your time, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Jason. Last summer, in July, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour made its stop in Seattle. She played two shows at the Lumenfield Stadium, and her fans were ready for it. Sarah Leo is a visual data journalist at The Economist. Her iconic hit, Shake It Off, not only enchanted her fans, it also registered on nearby seismometers. That's right. During Shake It Off, the 70,000 Swifties in the stadium caused vibrations similar to those during an earthquake. The graph we published shows the seismic activity that was captured during Shake It Off. This performance triggered some of the strongest vibrations of the whole three-hour set. The crowd goes particularly wild at the start of the chorus. As Taylor sings, because the player's gonna play, that's when seismic activity peaks. These seismic readings actually spurred scientific research carried out by Jackie Kaplan Auerbach, who's a professor in the geology department at Western Washington University. It's more that Taylor Swift sort of chose us. She recently presented her findings to the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco. They have been researching such seismic activity associated with crowd behavior since 2011 though not related to Taylor Swift, but rather an American football game for the Seattle Seahawks. Oh, look at this run! What a run! Marshawn Lynch! And Marshawn Lynch scored a touchdown against the New Orleans Saints in a major football game, and the crowd went nuts, and that signal was detected on a seismometer, so we know that crowd activity there can be picked up. And that's an iconic moment in Seattle sport. Marshawn Lynch, the running back for the Seattle Seahawks, is known by his nickname Beast Mode. So everyone referred to it as the Beast Quake. So inevitably, when Taylor Swift came to town, locals wanted to know if they were living through another legendary quake, a Swift quake. And so it was very easy to see right off the bat in that first day that the data were really fascinating. So it first was just a question of, oh, did it happen? And then it was, whoa, what happened? It's really cool. So that caught my attention pretty quickly. Whereas the Beast Quake was a one-off event, Taylor Swift played two shows in Seattle. So researchers were able to compare the reactions of the crowd from one night to the next. In seismic data, if seismograms look vaguely similar, there's often an interesting story there. These were clearly identical over the two nights, and so we knew immediately that we're looking at a common set list, and that immediately confirms that what we're seeing is related to the music 
And so we really knew right off the bat we could look song by song and understand what was happening at that scale. The higher frequencies which came from Taylor's voice were tracked during soundcheck, but the lower frequencies came when the crowds entered the stadium. These lower frequencies changed from song to song in line with the tempo of the music. Those were the frequencies that were registered on the seismometer. So they were clearly driven by the audience's response rather than a general resonance from the building itself. And this activity wasn't just present during Shake It Off. It actually reached its crescendo during Love Story from one of Taylor Swift's earlier albums. During the performance of Love Story, Taylor raised her left arm victoriously and sang the To Swifties iconic line, pulled out a ring and said, Marry me, Juliet. During this moment, the ground ended up shaking twice as hard for Taylor as it did for the Beastquake. It clearly resonated with her fans. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.